If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up to the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And we're in the middle of a series, actually toward the end of a series called City on a Hill, where we've been looking at a number of distinctives and pursuits that we want to be about as a church. And we don't want to be about them because we made them up. We want to be about them because God gave them to us in his word. And so we know there's health in these pursuits. There's strength. There's mission. Um, there's the triumphs of the gospel await us on the other side of these pursuits. And so we want to take these things to heart. And this morning brings us to this pursuit of faith. We've used the language in the We Are series a couple of years ago of we risk intentionally. And this chapter, Hebrews 11, is the classic chapter on faith. Some, some have called it over the years the hall of faith because it feels sort of like you're walking through a gallery and there's pictures on either side with stories attached of legendary acts of faith in the, on the part of those who, who risked everything, who staked their lives on the promise of God. And you just see story after story as you walk through Hebrews chapter uh, 11. And so by the time we come to our text, which is beginning, beginning in verse 32, so put your finger there, I'm gonna start reading in just a moment. By the time we get to verse 32, uh, the author of Hebrews is sort of wrapping up these stories of faith and he's summarizing uh, the way of faith for the people of God in a world of hardship. And this was deeply meaningful to that first century community of believers. And this is life and death for us as well. We need these stories. We need these truths because we're called to live by faith. And so look with me at verse 32 of chapter 11. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He says, time is too short, and then he tells you about them. Right, classic preacher move right there. Time's too short, but I'm going to tell you about them. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground, all these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Here's the challenge that we face. Nothing is more unnatural to us than to live by faith. And yet, earlier in this very same chapter, we learned that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So just let that tension rest right here for just a moment. It's impossible to please God without faith, but faith doesn't come naturally. Faith isn't, isn't an instinctive thing for us living in this world. A, a musical uh, philosopher from a few years back put it this way, 
We are living in a material world, and I am a material girl. <laughs> in other words, right, the, our, our senses as we walk through this world are assaulting us on every side. We're, we're being told by a world around us that this is how you judge what's right and wrong. This is how you judge what's wise and what's foolish is you judge by looking with your natural eyes and listening with your natural ears. You, you fly by the seat of your pants. You see where life takes you. You follow your heart. You follow your dream, right? We, we live in a world that's attacking our, our senses in that way, and it's the easiest thing ever to live by sight. And yet, the Apostle Paul will say in another place, we walk by faith, not by sight. The author of Hebrews describes faith this way. Faith, in verse 1 of chapter 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, what? Not seen. That's, that's the challenge. That's the struggle of faith. We don't see it. A conviction of things we can't see with our natural eyes in the, the recent thriller, Bird Box, um, there's this sort of dwindling number of survivors who realize that the only way to stay alive is to blindfold themselves because there's this evil force in the world and it gets in when it sees your eyes. When it has access to the naked eye, it gets inside, takes control of you, and, you, and it's over for you. And at one point, so they realize that, so they taped up, they get into this house, they tape up all the windows so nobody can see out. And then they realize we're running out of food and they need to make a supply run and there's a car in the garage, and they tape up all the windows in the car, so you're essentially blind driving this car, but they realize they have a GPS in the car, and so they're driving, navigated by the GPS alone. Well, that's helpful, but there's, you're, you've got a post-apocalyptic scene out there. So you've got debris everywhere and grocery carts, and everything's out of place, and so they're bumping into things left and right, and they're realizing we have to, we have to learn another way of seeing. That's the challenge. And the Apostle Paul talks in a similar way when he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. We're used to walking by sight. That comes naturally. We like walking with our eyes open in this world. We like sight. That comes instinctively. But this side of eternity, Christians walk by faith, not by sight. And so when Scripture talks about the fight of faith, are you familiar with that language? When scripture talks about the fight of faith. It's talking about this struggle that we have to learn to live with a new way of seeing. God's word is, if you will, God's word is this GPS. God gives us and it helps us, enables us to navigate, to have a new way of seeing in the world. If you read the whole letter, whole book of Hebrews, you pick up something about the original audience. These are embattled people. These are people who had turned and embraced Jesus as the long-promised Messiah to the Hebrew people and to the Gentiles as well, and they embraced that message. And so they were facing all kinds of hardship. They had lost property. Some of them were in prison. Talks about that in a number of different places in this letter. So, so Hebrews 11, these are not, you know, sentimental nighttime stories. This is, again, this is life and death. This matters. Taking this instruction from this chapter fully on board is going to mean the difference between persevering and turning back. Two convictions to cultivate as we pursue a life of faith. Two convictions to cultivate as we pursue a life of faith. The first is this. God loves to be trusted. 
God loves to be trusted. So you see three groups of people in our passage. And I'm going to work from back to front. So the third group is right there in verse 40. It's the original audience, and we're also roped in in verse 40. So back up to verse 39. All these were approved through their faith. So now he's looking back into history. But they did not receive what was promised since God has provided something better for us. That's the readers of the book of Hebrews, and that also includes us in this room, so that they would not be made perfect without us. So what, so what is he saying there? Essentially, he's just saying, for all the legendary acts of faith on the part of Abraham and Moses and all those just legendary heroes of faith, he said they would give their right arm to live in the new covenant. They, they were straining forward toward promises they never saw in their total fulfillment. Why? Because, as we learn in the New Testament, all the promises of God made back there find their yes in Christ. Jesus gets here and he activates all those promises of God to his people. And so he's telling this embattled first century community of faith, the new covenant is better. The whole book of Hebrews is about that. New covenant's better. He's just beating that drum. It's better. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than anything that we had in the past because all the things that we had in the past were reaching forward to this moment that we're living in, the new covenant moment, fullness in Christ. And now he's saying to his fellow Hebrew brothers and sisters, he's saying we get to live in the good of promises that they strained to see. So you see that group of people, and then you back up and you see two other groups of people, and this is where our primary focus is going to be. You see a group who conquers by faith in verse 32 through 35, and you see a group of people who endured suffering by faith in verses 35 to 38. And then you see this sort of um, post-game review and assessment of all of these people of faith in verse 39. All these, that is the ones who conquered and escaped the edge of the sword by faith and the ones who were scourged and sawn in two. All these were approved or commended if, by God through their faith. So if they're commended by God through their faith, and that's the only way to get the commendation of God, it begs the question, what is faith? What is biblical faith? We need clarity on this, and if we're going to get it from anywhere, we're going to get it from God's Word. So, so consider this. It's in your notes. Biblical faith involves three things, truth, conviction, and action. Truth, conviction, and action. We'll just take those one at a time very briefly. It involves truth. In other words, there's essential content to believe. Right here in this very same passage in, in chapter 11, it says, without faith it's impossible to please God, for the one who would come to God must believe that, and there's something that comes after that. In other words, there's content that must be believed if there's to be biblical faith. And what does it go on to say? Must believe that he exists, that he's... He, the, that the one true and living God is really there. He's the God who's there, and he's the God who, he goes on to say, rewards those who come to him or those who seek after him. So there's content that must be believed if we have faith in the biblical sense. Maybe you're visiting today and Christian faith is unfamiliar to you. Maybe you've never been in a Christian worship gathering before. Welcome. Like We're, we're thrilled that you're here. So there, there's central truths around which Christians have gathered 
for all of the differences in the global church and in different denominations around the world, there's this core set of beliefs, and it centers on the person and work of Jesus. And we've been saying this for 2,000 years. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That gathers and unifies the church of the ages. These convictions, and our faith centers on that. So there are essential truth claims to be believed. But then there's conviction. So there's truth, there's conviction. In other words, you don't just believe those things sort of check in a box and it's out there. It's, it's a personal thing. In other words, the truth that Christ died on the cross has deep relevance for your life. It's not just that he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He died to make you right. He died and took your sin in his body on the tree. He rose to get you through death. He rose to put you into the new creation. The resurrection gives us new life. In other words, you personalize it. You bring it on board. There's a conviction there. So there's truth, there's conviction, and then there's action. In other words, you say, I'm going to live by this. I'm going to obey this. I'm going to live in the direction of this promise. That leads us to the next point. We can't please God apart from faith. And by faith, I mean this robust faith involving truth claims and personal conviction and action. So James says, faith without works is dead. In other words, anybody can just say they believe. How do you know? How do you know that there's genuine faith, the work of God in the soul of a sinner? How do you know that the soul is alive to God? He says, you see it in the person's life. It's demonstrated. That's why Paul talks about the obedience of faith. That is the, the obedience that springs out of all genuine faith. Genuine faith reaps a harvest, and the harvest is obedience. Glad-hearted, I'll follow him. Tell me what you're saying. I'm coming in your direction. I'm walking with you. Faith shows itself in the way that we live. We transfer our trust to Jesus. In, in the 1800s, there was a man named Charles Blondin and he performed amazing feats on tightropes all over the world, and as many as 10,000 people would sometimes be drawn to watch his just death-defying performances. Charles Dickens in London came out to watch him and commented about the size of the crowd that was there. Blondin was best known for his high-wire act, crazy spectacles that he would do on a wire that was above, stretched across Niagara Falls. And he would, run, uh, he would run wheelbarrows across the thing, uh, all kinds of stuff. And one day in, in 1860, the Prince of Wales was there, and he was on the far side of the rope on the other side of the Niagara Falls. And here comes Blondin. And Blondin has his own assistant on his back as he walks across the Niagara Falls. And he gets to the other side, and the Prince of Wales is absolutely amazed. And Blondin says, how amazed are you? hop on. And he invites him to come back across to the other side, which, which the Prince of Wales just declined the offer and wasn't interested in that particular thing, right? It's, it's one, in other words, it's one thing to be amazed, it's another to climb on. Biblical faith isn't just amazed, it climbs on. It says, you're taking me where? Let's go. It, it trusts. You can get me to the other side? Let's go. That's what biblical faith, it's action. It's commitment, it's confidence. It, you know, it's, it's so easy, particularly in our culture, to check off the facts, the things that we 
learn growing up and going to Sunday school and going to VBS, right, and, and yet live life on our own terms. That's not biblical faith. Faith hears Jesus say, I'll carry you back across and transfers trust to him. Trust from myself and now I transfer that to him. Christian faith isn't a spectator event. It takes over your life. So God loves to be trusted. Second, the second conviction is risk aversion is contrary to faith. Risk aversion is contrary to faith. Just stop and think about the fact that God doesn't take risks. You ever think about that? God doesn't take risks. And the reason he doesn't take risks is very simple. He knows the end from the beginning. When you know the future as well as you know the past, when you have all knowledge of all things, when you know the word on their tongue before they've even spoken it, which Psalm 139 says, when you know which direction the kingdom of Babylon is coming from, in advance, and what day it's going to arrive. When you can call that in advance, you can't take risks, right? God knows the outcome of all his choices before they happen. Not only does he know the outcome, this will, this will melt your mind. Not only does he know the, all the outcomes of all of his choices, he knows all the outcomes of all the potential choices that could be made. Every potential contingency in the universe, the thousands Multiply by thousands of contingencies, and he knows what new dominoes fall when that thing changes or when that thing happens. So just think about that. God knows all the dominoes that would have fallen if, let's say, JFK's assassin missed. What would that have changed in society, potentially in the world? What God knows exactly what would have happened in that scenario. All, he knows all the things that would have resulted, this is a little painful for me to relive, all the things that would have resulted if, for example, the ref didn't blow that pass interference call in the Saints versus Rams game <laughs> several weeks ago, right? At, at the moment that that failed call happened, only an all-knowing God knew how lame the Super Bowl was going to be. Like, He's the only person in the universe who knew that domino would fall. It's going to be lame for everyone because that call was missed, right? He knows all the contingencies. God can do that. We can't. Hence, the life of faith involves risk. The life of faith is risky. Risks exist because ignorance exists. Risk exists because we're not all-knowing. That's why the Bible says, for example, and, and James has a way of kind of getting up in your grill. You know, he's that New Testament writer who gets in your grill a lot. Here's, here's what James says. <laughs> Come now, you who say. This is not going to be good, right? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring what your life will be, for you are like vapor <laughs> that appears for a little while, then vanishes. He says, here's a better option. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other words, this is the place of modesty. This is the place of humility before God. We, we can't predict outcomes with certainty. We, that's, that's above our pay grade. We can wisely plan, we can take calculated risks, only God knows the outcomes. 
And so if we want to live by faith, we have to embrace, I think, two life statements that live right next to each other and intention. We might put it this way. It's in your notes. Forward with God, outcomes will vary. Forward with God, outcomes will vary. In other words, come what may, we move forward with God. We obey his word. We believe his promises. What's that have to do with our text? Just think about it. So verse 32 to 35, verse 35 to 38, you see these two lists of of people. And the first list in 32 to 35 speaks of, if you will, we might categorize it as the exciting victories of faith. Beginning of 35, 32, beginning of 35, exciting victories of faith. So all the stuff that you read in verse 32 to 35, that's the stuff you want for your life. You want to escape the sword. Right? You don't want fire to burn you. These are the kinds of things you pray, big prayers, and this is what you wanted to, to see God do. The second list is what you don't want. You don't want scourgings. You don't want mockings. You don't want saws cutting you in half. Right? We don't want the second list. And yet there's a hinge in our passage between the first list and the second list, and it's right there in the middle of verse 35. And it's one word in the original Greek, Others. Others. If, if my faith can't account for what comes after the word others, I'm in trouble. Because if I don't read what happens from others and following, I'm only going to expect victory in this life. I'll tell you what faith gives you. It lets you escape the sword. It lets you dive into fire and not be burned. That's what faith does. Fire doesn't cinch my clothes. I'm fireproof. Because I have faith, I am fireproof. Because I have faith, lions don't want to eat me, ever. I mean, I was with them for days. They had not been fed, and yet, strangely, they're just never hungry when I'm there. That's what, if all you have is an understanding of faith that's driven and guided by verse 32 to 35, there's no preparation for the hard side, for the realities of pain in a broken world. Just take one of the threatenings that's in this passage. So there's multiple threatenings, fire and sword and all the rest. Just talk about swords for a second. Ask this text the question, what do swords do to people who believe in God, to people who live on his promise? Verse 34, they escaped the edge of the sword. Awesome, we're swordproof. Verse 37, they died by the sword. <laughs> people of faith, Some of them escaped the edge of the sword. Others died by the sword. Verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. If I don't have a category as a Christian for that second list, there's a real danger that I don't have faith in God, I have faith in my agenda for God. There's a real danger in that. It's not faith in God, it's, it's faith in my agenda for God. And yet you look at verse 39, it says, all these were approved through their faith. Who's the all these? The ones who conquered kingdoms and the ones who went down and sunk like a stone. All of them were approved, commended by God, because they believed his promise all the way to the end. Stones flying in their direction, kept believing. He's worth it. 
he's better. And then it finishes with that word about of whom the world is not worthy. There's a sense of, um, of reverence, isn't there? The world wasn't worthy of these people who suffered for his name and suffered keeping their eyes on the, the promise of what was to come, a better resurrection on the other side of the stoning. And he's almost saying, take your shoes off, you're in the presence of, you're on holy ground. You're seeing something only the work of God can do. I know Christians. I know Christians here in this room of whom the world is not worthy. Not because they've conquered kingdoms and put foreign armies to flight, but because they're still trusting God when the bottom fell out. They're still trusting God when all hell broke loose. And they still believe his promise and they put their feet on the floor in the morning and they say, God is true and every man a liar. God is worth being trusted. God is better than this. Look, this should be really clear to us. As Christians, we're not on the hunt for a designer life. That's, that's not our way. That is not our path. As Christians, we don't fill up our lives with noise to kind of drown out the pain and brokenness of the world. That's not our path. Ours is the path of risk-taking faith that moves forward. The foundational, bone-deep conviction of faith is this. It's in your notes. God is better than all this life could give to us or death could take from us. Let me say that again. God is better than all this life could give to us and all that death could ever take from us. If If you find Jesus to be the most compelling person who ever lived, and if you believe that his death on the cross puts you right with a holy God, takes away the fear of condemnation, if you believe that his resurrection will get you through to the other side of death and into resurrection life, That's what it means to follow him. Those are the core convictions that drive a life of faith. He's got us. What can this world do to us? Forward with God. Outcomes will vary. Let's move. That's the life of faith. This is the life. This is the life. Can I just say to you, wherever you are in the journey of faith, that's the life God intends for you. What do you mean? I mean life with God. Life with God. Life with God as your forgiver. Life with God as your justifier. Life with God is a very present help in time of need. Life with God, that's what he offers to us. And then he gives us this GPS. He gives us a new way of seeing. And sometimes we bump our way through, but he gives us a new way of seeing, and we have a hope and a future that's certain. So if you've never believed and put your trust in Christ, today's the perfect day to do it. And Hebrews will often call the people that he's talking to, he says, now is the day of salvation. Embrace Christ as Lord. Know what it's like to be fully forgiven. Know what it feels like to be in the grip of a God who's better than anything life could give us and better than anything death could take from us. The Apostle Paul is a changed man. And he stops and he says, let me just let you know exactly what's happened here. Let me explain my life. He says, the life, this is my wife's life verse. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That explains 
everything in Paul's life. He loved me. I trust him. He loved me. Climb on. Let's go. He, he believed in this God. God had proven himself faithful. God's promises, grasped by the heart, unleash God's people for good in the world. Say that again. God's promises, grasped by the heart, unleash God's people for good in the world. So we can take risks, right? That's not, and that's not foolishness. We can take risks because God doesn't. We can trust him. We can step into the unknown because God knows it. That's why a song was sung. In my childhood grow up, growing up, we used to sing a song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives. So there's a central truth, home base. Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. Frees us up for risk-taking obedience believing the promises of God. So what do we do, Brook Hills? Three things. Three things to bring on board in our lives. Number one, believe big. Believe big. If I can say, I think that there's a, a very real danger that we can swing the pendulum to the other side. We can be reactionary as Christians, and we can see people who beat the drum of the prosperity gospel, and if you believe in Jesus, everything just gets healthier, everything just gets wealthier and better all the time, and we can swing the pendulum to the other side, and we can essentially say, all there is is suffering if you follow Jesus. There are no triumphs of grace. Your marriage will never change. Sorry, he's not working miracles anymore. He did that in the past. He's not, he's not going boss mode on the world anymore the way that he did in biblical times. And we can lack faith that God has options. Like, God has the nuclear option at his fingertips. He could, he could be, just come and bring the fireworks of miraculous power. He can open that closed country. He can open a closed heart. He can save a marriage that's beyond repair. He can, just, he can do stuff. And sometimes we swing the pendulum to the other side and we don't pray big prayers, like big, audacious, crazy, God, you're the only one who could do this. Do something awesome in the world. Do something awesome in my life. Write a new story. Flip the script. The, the late Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard, he, uh, he just did, did a number on me last year. I was reading a number of his books. And he said, he said that as Christians, we pray words from the Bible just by rote, only to realize on reflection we don't believe a word of it. And I thought about that. And I thought of how often my prayers are small God prayers. Prayers that I could almost stop the prayer and just go do it myself. Right? It doesn't dignify, it doesn't honor the sovereign one who can do anything in the world. Nothing's too hard for him. I've been so convicted at the low bar prayers that I pray. I'm hanging safety nets while I'm praying. You know, you might not want to do this. So just adding all these qualifiers and caveats. Do you pray for God to exercise the nuclear option, to exercise the miraculous option? Do you pray as if he might, he just might come barreling in with saving, delivering, healing power? Do Christians believe that anymore? I love Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus walks past a, a blind man named Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus is making quite a scene, and he's screaming out 
with all he's got, veins popping out of his neck, and he's saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus knows this man is blind. He could easily have walked over to blind Bartimaeus. Instead, he tells his disciples, go tell him to come to me. His disciples go and they say, Jesus wants you to come to him. And the text says, Bartimaeus, quote, threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. There's an eagerness. Jesus loves this. There's an eagerness. There is a readiness. You can do something, right? And Jesus, he comes up to Jesus, and Jesus wonderfully asks an open-ended question. You know what he says? He looks at this blind man and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And he responds, Bartimaeus responds, four words. I want to see. And Jesus says, go, your faith has saved you. What if, what if Jesus walked up to us, Brook Hills, and he leaned in and he asked the open-ended question. And he said, what? What do you want me to do for you? Don't lowball him. Ask for the moon, right? Ask him to show his power. Let, let's ask for stuff that we couldn't possibly pull off in our own strength. Let's honor the size of God, the awesome power of God. Believe big. Two, don't despise the ordinary. So you can detect that there's tension just between these two. They're right next to each other, but they're also right next to each other in Hebrews chapter 11. So... So it makes sense. Both are in this text. The miracle of the Hebrew boys being cast into the flames and they come out on sins. You can't even smell smoke on their garments. So you got this epic story of miracle and then right next to it you have the providence of God, his invisible hand at work when Rahab invites the spies in, says hide over there and gives them intel about the situation in Jericho. Seems ordinary. You got pyrotechnic events of miracle power, and then you have ordinary intel sharing and gathering information of the spies. Both of those stories sit right next to each other in Hebrews chapter 11. You remember how this all started with, with Abraham, the patriarch of the faith. God promises him the moon, right? He says, Abraham, look up into the sky and count the stars. You're not going to be able to do that. You're also not going to be able to count the children I'm going to give you. This is beyond believing. This is just short of unbelievable. He says, I'm going to get you children. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you nations. I'm going to give you a global blessing. All these massive, just incredible, otherworldly promises. You come over from chapter 15 to chapter 16. Ten years have passed. Still no son, no name, no nation, no global blessing. You come to the last verse of Genesis 16. It reads this. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. That's the last verse of chapter 16. Turn the page, first verse of the very next chapter. So the very next verse says this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Where'd the 13 years go? 13 years, just poof, gone, right? How many of our lives, we understand this. It's the life of faith. Dale Ralph Davis is one of my favorite authors, and he commented on this passage. This is so helpful. He says, by dropping 13 years into the dumpster of history between chapters 16 and 17, the writer underscores the struggle of Abraham's faith. What happened in those 13 years? Oh, what had happened during the previous decade plus? Abraham played veterinarian to his goats, settled scraps among his herdsmen, 
sat up with Sarah when she had the flu, sent scouts out to look for water sources for the flocks. In short, all the sorts of things one does in the wash your face, brush your teeth, go to work routine of daily living. And year follows year that way, and Yahweh's promise goes unfulfilled. Is the writer not telling us that time can be a severe problem for faith? That it can be hard to go on believing when you have to walk on an ordinary run-of-the-mill living without seeing any of the fireworks of promise. Don't despise the ordinary. So much of the life of faith happens in our ordinary lives, and it, it should be that way. In other words, living by faith doesn't just, doesn't just mean certain Christian-specific activities are blessed by God. Like when you pray or when you gather for worship or when you evangelize, you know, God's going to be there in a special way. Living by faith means everything matters now. We're living life with God now. It touches everything in our lives. Every station of your life can be done by faith. Every season of your life can be lived by faith. How we care for our bodies, by faith. How we use technology, how we parent our children, by faith, by faith. Eyes up. GPS of his word guiding us this way and that. All of life is supposed to be a life of faith. In other words, all of life is meant to be one protracted, one long sustained amen to what God has said. What God has said about himself, what God has said about history, what God has said about our lives here and now, what God says about the future of the world, it directs us. Our life takes shape from the promise of God. So believe God, two, don't despise the ordinary, and third, risk intentionally. Risk intentionally. God is gonna call us to step forward into things without notifying us of the outcomes in advance. Right, what does he do with Abraham? He makes promises, and then he says, pack your bags, we're going. Abraham says, where are we going? He says, I'll tell you when we get there. That's been the way of faith from day one. <laughs> and it hasn't changed. There's gonna be risk involved. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian. He was also an insurgent against the cause of Nazism in Germany. Bonhoeffer described the rise of Nazism in the 1930s, and he said, everywhere I look, I see, quote, Christian indecisiveness. He's saying, we, the church, can't figure out what we're supposed to do in response to this. He's getting stronger and stronger. He says, no, quote, no one knew what to do except Hitler. He said, we're just in a holding pattern. And Hitler's just gaining more and more ground. He's risking intentionally, and he's gaining more ground. And Nazi stranglehold, even on the church, the Protestant church in Germany, was almost complete. Government-sponsored efforts to unify all Protestant churches into a single pro-Nazi Reich church. And Bonhoeffer said, no. And he and his friends, they started a new movement called the Confessing Church. And Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to the, world, the head of the Ecumenical World Alliance, and he's pleading for support. And he's saying, you got to get in. you got to get in the game or it's going to be too late. Here's what he said in that letter. A decision must be made at some point, and it's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble. Even the ecumenical movement has to make up its mind and therefore subject to error, like everything human. But to procrastinate and prevaricate simply because you're afraid of erring when others, I mean our brethren in Germany, must make infinitely more difficult decisions every day 
seems to me almost to run counter to love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. He's trying to set them free to get out of the paralysis of indecision. Take a risk for goodness sake. These people are going to die. Author and, and scholar John Piper echoed Bonhoeffer when he said this. In my ministry, I have often said, after making a hard decision where both directions are painful, this is why I love the gospel. Doing nothing needs forgiveness as much as doing the best you can and erring. Look, Brooke Hills, if we want to be a Hebrews 11 church, we're going to take risks. It's the nature of this, the life of faith. We want to live by faith, we're going to take risks. You know what else that means? We're going to make mistakes. If we don't make mistakes these next five to ten years, it'll be because we played scared. We were hedging ourselves. We were, we were afraid of what we'd lose. We were averse to risk. I've coined a statement that has driven my sons crazy, and it's about to drive my daughter crazy this next year because I've taught it to them in the course of teaching them how to drive. So when you come into our neighborhood, you come straight off 280, and you have to cross 280 traffic to enter into our neighborhood. And so you're there at that median kind of angled, and there are cars whizzing by you on both sides, and there's 18-wheelers going 70 miles an hour coming up, and there's no light, there's no traffic light, so you just have to wait there. And so the phrase that I've coined that I've drummed in is this, when in doubt, don't. And I've said that so many times to my sons. When in doubt, don't. In other words, the stakes are too high to be impatient. If you just wait long enough, there will be a break where we can safely make it across. And even if the car stalls, we can get out and push the thing the rest of the way. There's a way to safely get across 280. Look, when in doubt, don't makes good sense in crossing 280 traffic. It is not the slogan of the early church. When in doubt, don't has never been the marching motto of God's people of faith. You're not very far in the book of Acts. They've been beat up. <laughs> They've been threatened by people who have some power. They come out of that moment. They get together. The first time they get together in Acts chapter 4, you put your ear to the wall and you hear these people talking and here's what they're, here's what they're praying. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may be safe and protected from all harm. That, that's not where they went. Consider their threats and grant that your servants may take it to the teeth of our enemies, right? May speak your word with all boldness while you, and here's God going boss mode on the world, right? While you stretch out your hand and healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, so the place just starts rumbling. The place they were assembled was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Risking intentionally isn't what cutting edge churches do to prove that they're cutting edge. Risking intentionally is what churches do to prove they're still breathing. Faith is oxygen. Dependence on God is how the church breathes. Comfort, familiarity makes us sleepy, makes us drowsy in the world. Dependence is how you stay awake. 
It's how we stay awake as a church. If we just cling to what's familiar, we start dying next Sunday. He's calling us out, right? God doesn't lead churches through change because he has ADD and he's just tired of the way that it's been or because we have ADD and he's tired of hearing us whine about the way that it's been. He leads churches through change because terrible things happen when leaders and churches figure it out. Our mechanisms, our well-oiled programs are accomplishing God's work in our community and in the world and we become self-sufficient and we start dying next Sunday. God forbid, God help us. And if that day ever comes, we won't necessarily be using language that smacks of overt, explicit self-sufficiency, you know, pounding our chest. But there there will be an intangible, a discernible lack of desperation for God. And you'll pick it up when you hear the people pray. We'll we'll pray predictable, sleepy, unambitious, small God prayers. Because we're not called to be impulsive or foolhardy, but we don't get to play it safe either. That option has not been given to us. The life of faith beckons with all of its risks. It's forward with God. Outcomes will vary. Come what may, we're with him. Come what may, his promises are worth believing. So we swing for the fences. That's the life of faith. We, we stumble forward and we're trusting him all along and we can take risks because God doesn't. And all the while we're cultivating and remembering this truth that God is most pleased when he is trusted by his people.